We just finished up a series called Enjoy Grace, and I know that if you're anything like me, you really, really were confronted and really, really challenged and really, really encouraged. Um, Honestly, after some of the messages that we heard about leaders that enjoy grace, men that enjoy grace, women that enjoy grace, um, and then marriages that enjoy grace, honestly, I feel a little wobbly. I feel a little knocked off my kind of my low center of gravity. Um, just honestly just feel a little bit undone by hearing the what does it look like for people to really enjoy the grace of God. It's incredibly challenged by the picture of what enjoying grace looks like. I think oftentimes we, we, have, this, we have this idea of process, we have this idea of, of well, you know, this, this, the standards and the, the, the expectations that God has for us as people, they're just something that we just kind of wave at every now and then and don't really take seriously. But when you put it in the context of en- when it, you enjoy the grace of God, you become all these things that Robert went through for several weeks. I was so challenged. And it's caused me to lean deeper into God's grace and to really what God can do in our lives and in our hearts. This series is adding, kind of um, unpack the idea of how does that change take place? We did a good job the last several times of talking about what does change look like. Over this next series called, who, called God Is, we're going to look at how God actually does that change. We're going to kind of open up, the, open up our hearts and open up our lives and see how does God actually get in there and make change happen. So we're going to learn specifically about who God is and what difference does that make. So what? Who is God and what difference does that make? Taking a step back, I, I was uh, back in February. I was able to take a trip up to Alaska. Anyone ever here been to Alaska? Raise your hand real high. Okay. So you know what it's like to be 14 degrees all the time. Um, I never took my long underwear off the entire time I was there. Um, and it was, it was this amazing, amazing experience. Um, if you've been there, then you may know some of this. But Alaska, it, it's not all Eskimos and not all you know, igloos. There's actually real cities and real people and real things. But I was able to do some things I really never thought I would do. Um, I got taken up in a, in a plane, an airplane, no bigger than my car, and was crossing glaciers and crossing frozen lakes, and we dropped down into a riverbed and would literally chase caribou down this riverbed that was frozen over, full of snow. And we got out one time, and we, and we landed. Well, we didn't get out before we landed. We landed the plane, then got out, and we landed on a frozen lake. The lake had this much snow packed on top of it. And in, on the West Coast, you know there's not nearly as much humidity as there, here is, in, as there is here in Richmond. And I, would, and I picked up the snow. You've never seen dry snow before, unless you've been, been in Alaska. The snow was dry, and when I picked it up, it literally fell through my fingers like grains of sand. And when you looked at it, the crystals were absolutely amazing. And I just... I, I left this experience of literally flying through frozen glacier mountains 
And then the rest of my trip took, took me to Seattle, which is a normal, grimy, dirty city. And the, 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 the soul-uplifting sense that I got when I was in the mountain ranges of Alaska completely left me by the time I got to Tacoma. It was like, it was just a distant memory. And the sense of being in this beautiful snow-capped mountain range full of snow and bald eagles and caribou and all the other cool things we were shot at. Um, I just shot at things, didn't shoot anything. But completely gone. And it struck me, thinking about that, how, how much we can know about God, think about God, and actually have our souls uplifted by the idea of who God is. Did I do that? Um, but yet, there's distance between us and majesty that we can so soon forget. Just like I totally forgot what Alaska felt like when I got to Tacoma. We can forget what the majesty of God is like. We can forget what it means for the majesty of God to have an effect on our souls. We can absolutely lose the sense of God's grandeur and His glory through the normal rhythms of life. We're going to take a look. We're going to remember who God is in this series. Spurgeon said this. He said, The proper study of the Christian is the Godhead. It is a subject so vast that all of our thoughts are lost in its immensity, so deep that our pride is drowned in its infinity. Other subjects we can comprehend and grapple with. In them, we feel a kind of self-contentment to go our own way with the thought, Behold, I am wise. But when we come to this science, the science of the Godhead, we find we cannot sound its depth and we cannot see its height. And so we turn away with this thought, I am but of yesterday and know absolutely nothing. I wonder if you've felt that recently. I wonder if you have felt the sense that when you think about God and all that He is, not just who we pretend and hope that He is, but when you let your mind through the Scriptures, expand to start to take in the idea that God is. Does that, does that sense of the weightiness of that ever sit upon your soul? A.W. Tozer said this, and this is on the screen for us. He said, what comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its idea of God. For this reason, the gravest question before us is always God Himself. And the most pretentious fact about any man is not what he at any given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be. I don't know if you've ever thought about it this way, but in this series, I want to show this, that behind every sin, behind every negative emotion, behind every bit of sadness, anger, bitterness, depression, you name it, is the sin of unbelief. Not believing that God is who He has revealed Himself to be. And on the other side, and this is where we're going to end up in the series, that every act of God-glorifying obedience and every positive emotion, joy, contentment, peace, love, just like Tozer just said, originates in a seeing and savoring and a functional belief of something that is simply true about God. 
And when I say this, please don't think I'm talking about right doctrine. Right thoughts about God is certainly part of it. But I'm talking about the difference between belief in theory and a belief in practice. Talking about what is it like to know some intellectual facts about who God is, but yet our hearts do not yet trust those facts. The difference between God being true to you and Him being real to you. I doubt there are very many people in this room who would doubt the existence of God or doubt that the things that I may even say this morning are true. But that's not the issue. The issue is, are they real to you? Do they make any difference in how we live? There's a huge gap here because it it, it goes like this. I can believe that I am justified before God because of Jesus. But still, tomorrow morning, to one degree or another, I will attempt to prove my self-worth and to justify my existence through what I do or how well I keep my home. I may believe that I am completely acquitted, that I will be completely acquitted on the ultimate day of judgment, but yet I still find myself, talking about myself, wanting to justify my every mistake. I still find myself wanting to be right in every argument. I'll do anything I can do to keep the facade alive that I don't really make mistakes and don't really hurt people. Even though I believe that on the final day of judgment, I'm completely good because of Jesus. See, we live between this confessional and this functional disbelief. In this series, we want to close the gap between those two things. So we're going to take four weeks to remember who God is, what He is like, and we're going to see what the implications are for us. Now, typically, if you've done any study on this, on the attributes of God, it can become this this mind-numbing intellectual exercise. You may have seen the categories of the way that theologians try to categorize all the things that, that we know about God. And there's so many ways to do that. There's, there's communicable attributes of God, which are things that, that God is that other things are like. Something like, well, God is love and God is gracious and He is faithful. But then there's other attributes of God that are incommunicable, like, like He is self-existent. God relies on no one for His existence. He is holy. He is eternal. There's ways to think about these attributes of God. Or there's things like primary, like things that are essential to His godness, like like self-sufficiency and eternity. Or relational attributes, like He's love and He's faithful to us. Or maybe moral attributes, like He's holy and He is righteous. But honestly, to peer into these things should not be an intellectual exercise. Honestly, I want to peer into the mind of someone who's actually enjoying these things to really know what it is to perceive God. Does that make sense? I, this, is, this is not meant to be an intellectual pursuit. While there is intellect involved, it is supposed to end with the psalm that we opened up the service with. And if we'll look at, look at that. This is the psalm of David. This, by the way, is the last psalm that David wrote. It's the last psalm listed in Psalms. And this is the beginning of the cacophony of the last section of the book of Psalms where it's just this this overwhelming, unending exaltation of enjoying the perfections and the goodness of God and praising Him for it. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. 
on the glorious splendor of your majesty, on your wondrous works I will meditate. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. It is not so important. Say this. It is important what you believe. But the question I feel like God is asking us is what do you enjoy? What do you really enjoy? Does these things that are true about God, do they actually cause you to enjoy Him? Go to the next slide. God is great. God is glorious. God is good. And God is gracious. These are the things we're going to explore over the next four weeks. Today is God is great. So we do not have to be in control. Now, before we get into this, I want to let you know that this series is based on a book called You Can Change. And we want to make this available for you guys for a suggested donation. Or this, these are 10 bucks, but you can give a donation on top of that to cover some of the other costs. Um, fantastic book. They're available in the lobby. I encourage you to pick, pick one of these up, drop some money in one of those boxes, and read along with us over the next four weeks as we go through, through this. Um, fantastic book. It's worth every bit $10 or more. So God is great. We do not have to be in control. We're going to walk through Isaiah chapter 40 today to discern what is the greatness of God like and why. Why is it that because God is great that we no longer have to be in control. Isaiah 40. Go to the next slide. He says this. The first line of Isaiah 40 is, Comfort, comfort my people. Say to the cities of Judah, verse 8, Behold your God. This is God speaking to Isaiah. Isaiah the prophet has is, is been sent by God to speak to the children of Israel, the nation of Israel, Specifically, in a time of great duress, he's talking to the exiles that have been literally picked up out of Israel by the Babylonians and taken away to the center of literally the known world, the largest empire, the largest nation. They are away from their home. They are completely distressed. God has not spoken to them for decades. And now God calls Isaiah to bring comfort to his people. And he does this specifically by this, by saying to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. It is in this statement that comfort comes to Israel. And it is in this statement, as we unpack it today, that you will see that comfort will come to us. So we're going to take some time. What does it mean to behold God? Before, now, this is, now, here's somewhat of a planned rabbit trail. But before, before we can get on the path of knowing who God is, we ha- I feel really strongly about this and something that's just shaken me recently. We have to get our minds around the fact that we cannot know who God is. That in spite of all the things that have been revealed about Him, God is so great that we will never, ever plumb the depths of the nature of His being and of His attributes, ever. 
I want this to shake us for a little bit this morning. Go to the next slide. Um, God is incomprehensible. He's absolutely incomprehensible. Paul said this. He said about Jesus, who's the image of God. He said, He is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality and who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can ever see. I wonder if this reality has ever really given you pause. Before we can start to know who God is, we have to realize He cannot never be fully known. I was in a conversation recently with three other of my neighbors. It's me, a child psychologist, a Buddhist, and a teacher, and a pastor. And we're all talking late one night. This is just this past week. And we get to the subject of God. And as you can imagine, there were some various opinions going on in the room. We'd each had a couple drinks by this point, so it didn't matter all that much. But we were sharing, sharing our deepest convictions about who God was. And the, and, the, and, and the guy who was a teacher was sharing what his son had experienced that day, his first day in Catholic school. His son came home. He was absolutely like, like just kind of had this like shocked look on his face when he got home. And his parents asked, well, what happened in school today? He was like, you're not going to believe it. We prayed to a ghost today. We prayed to a ghost. So what are you talking about? God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. And it, it just struck me. You know, it's, a, it's an archaic term. But when you think about the term, it gives us a sense of fear, doesn't it? Spirit can be somewhat really imminent and really close to us, but when you say ghost... There's a, there's, there's a sense of fear, a sense of separation there, a real sense of mystery. I wonder if we've lost that. Have we lost the sense that God is an unapproachable light? He is absolutely mysterious. C.S. Lewis really helps us here. He says, think about it this way. He says, suppose I were to tell you that just on the other side of this wall, right outside of those doors... There's a tiger of that out there. A wild tiger has just escaped from the zoo in Richmond. And guess what? We found him. He's right outside that door. Now, you guys would experience some sense of fear. Okay? You'd, you'd, everybody would run back and go, and go get your kids, and we'd all kind of huddle in here until they came and got the tiger and took him away. But it would be a very rational fear because you know what a tiger is like. But now what if I were to say, all right, there's actually a ghost behind that wall. You would fear, but it's almost a different kind of fear. It's, it's almost like a dread because you don't really know what a ghost is like. You don't really know. So along with fear, there is this sense of dread, of this uncanniness that would just absolutely undo us. But now suppose, and I'll quote this, that you were told simply, there's a mighty spirit in the room, and you absolutely believed it. Your feelings would then be even less like a mere fear of danger, 
and the disturbance would be profound. You would feel wonder and a certain shrinking, a sense of inadequacy to cope with such a visitor and a prostration before it. An emotion that could be described in Shakespeare's words, under it, my genius is rebuked. Has the idea of God ever stopped you in your tracks? Has it recently stopped you in your tracks? Have you ever paused when you're reading God or reading one of the words in Scripture like Lord or Yahweh and you pause to take in all that He is? You know, in biblical days, scribes would make copies of Scriptures. This is before printing presses, before anything mechanical. And they would literally, scribes would copy pages of the Old Testament. You know, before every single time a scribe would write the word Yahweh or God, he would, exchange, he would get a new pen, he would take a bath, put on new clothes, and continue to write the word. After that, after every stroke of writing the word Yahweh, he would then change pens. Did that for every single time he wrote the word. And you could say, oh, that's being a little legalistic. Oh, well, that's the old covenant. I don't think so. I think we've lost something. I think we've lost a sense of wonder and awe about simply the idea of who God is. We get this sense that He is so much like us. And He's not. Tozer said this, all the problems of heaven and earth, though they were to confront us together and at once, would be nothing compared to the overwhelming problem of God. That He is what He is like and what we as moral beings must do about Him. Before we can even begin to know who God is, we have to be set right. That's why the psalmist said to us, Be still. Be still and know that I'm God. The second thing I want to look at is God is unique. To whom then will you liken God in Isaiah 40? Or what likeness compare with Him? To whom then will you compare me that I should be like Him, says the Holy One. There are many words that we use to describe what God is like. But let me tell you, the words that God has given us, even in the Scripture, fall short. They are not really well equipped to carry the weight of who God is. In one sense, it is, it is we cannot know God who He is in Himself. We can only know God as He has revealed Himself to us. But it is, know this, that it is not right to say that God is really like anything. Because He's not like anything. Words fail us. Let's go to the next, next idea. God knows absolutely everything. Who has measured the Spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows Him His counsel? Whom did He consult? And who made Him understand? Who taught Him the path of justice? And taught Him knowledge? And showed Him the way of understanding? His understanding is inscrutable. Think about how much of our lives, how much of our money, how much of our time, how much of our life is consumed with 
the process of learning, of gathering information. Schools, research, colleges, computers. You could almost say that all of life is about gaining new information and processing it. Let this hit you for a second. God has never learned anything. He doesn't need to. He possesses all knowledge. Every advancement, every discovery, every human achievement of understanding, when we get there, God is waiting for us. Hey, I've been waiting for you. What took you so long? Everything we discover, God has always known it. And He knows the future. He knows the future as well as He knows the present and the past. Nothing ever surprises Him. God never sits back and goes, hmm, boy, that's interesting. Let me bring us home a little bit. You know you can't fool God? You can fool your parents. You can fool your teachers. You can fool your boss. You can fool your spouse. You can pretty much get away with half-truths. We can blow through the toll booths and not pay a cent, hoping that no one sees. But God sees. It's like the catechism that we're teaching all of our kids right now. Can you see God? No, I cannot see God, but He always sees me. Hebrews 4.13 says, No creature is hidden from His sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him with whom we must give account. Have you ever been in the presence of someone who's really smart? I mean, really smart. A professor, intellectual pastor maybe that you look up to. Someone who just amazes you with his wisdom. And, and, you, and you have one or two reactions. You either really get angry because he's an arrogant jerk because of all that he knows. Okay? Or you're just in awe. And you don't want to open your mouth because you don't want to sound ignorant. Have you, ever, have you ever felt like that? I, I've, I've met some people that I've read books by, and I'm just like, oh my gosh. I'm just like, boy, you, I read your book. And, you know, I don't, I'm just like, you know, you're just, you're just sitting there like this. You don't want to say anything because you don't want to, I mean, you, anything you say would just be stupid compared to what this guy knows. And when you walk out of a library, when you walk out of a library, think of the biggest library you've ever ever been in. Did you ever get the sense of like, wow, there's a lot of books in here. There's a lot of information. I'm surrounded by all this knowledge. Now, does that make you feel a little prideful because you actually studied a little bit? Or because, or does it make you feel just absolutely undone because of all you don't know? Personally, I'm a lazy pseudo-intellectual. I love being around books. I love sitting in libraries. I, 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 I don't read as much as I should, but I just love the fact that I have access to so much knowledge and information. It, it has this like weird effect on me. I, I was, we were actually in a pastor's study up in D.C. a few months ago, and it was the most amazing library I've ever seen. I mean, it was ceiling-to-floor books. Shelves crammed, not just with like your normal Christian bookstore books, but I mean the best books, the books that you would always want to read and you know you would never ever have enough time in your lifetime to read them. I didn't want to leave. It was like I just wanted everyone to leave. I just wanted to sit there. 
being surrounded by all this. You know that that doesn't even show up on the scales of what God knows. The silence that we impose upon ourselves in the presence of someone who's smart. Have we ever been silent because of all that God knows? Have we ever let that sit upon our soul? Are we just talk, 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 God this, God that, He spoke to me, He did this, He does this. Do we really, really know what we're talking about? Go to the next slide. God is all-powerful. Is there one that says all-powerful? Maybe not. Maybe I left it out. Maybe I cut it. All right. Well, I'm going to talk about how powerful he is, even though it's not up there. God is all-powerful. Let me read this. All the nations are as nothing before him, it says in Isaiah 40. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and meaningless. It says that he, being God, who sits above the circle of the earth, its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, and he brings princes to absolutely nothing. He makes the rulers of the earth as empty. Isaiah is comparing him, God, to the most powerful human force, the most powerful human force that Israel could relate to. I am making the nations that surround you, the nations that attack you, the nations that threaten you, that have armies upon armies upon armies. God has made them nothing. Stephen Charnock said this, another one of my favorite Puritans. He said, the power of God is the ability and strength whereby He can bring to pass whatever He pleases, whatever His infinite wisdom may direct, and whatever the infinite purity of His will may resolve. God's power is like Himself. It is infinite, it is eternal, it is incomprehensible. It can neither be checked, restrained, nor frustrated by any creature. That is the power of God. Think about His power in creation. He didn't do anything. He simply spoke. And matter was created. Think about His power in preservation. We, we get, we are so alarmed and we should be, and we are so shaken and we should be when a hurricane or something hits home. When a tsunami wipes out hundreds of thousands of people, it should absolutely shake us. But do we ever consider that that should happen every single day? And it doesn't. Have we ever taken in the fact that, that these natural disasters that by every reason to believe could happen every single moment, but they don't? That there is someone restraining the oceans. There is someone restraining hurricanes. Hurricane season is coming. There, we are going to be, you know, we are going to run into our basements over the next couple of months. We are going to be getting all kinds of things to prepare for all this rain and all this water that's going to threaten us all the way up in Richmond. But do we ever consider that why that doesn't happen all the time? God is preserving 
us. He preserves every person alive. There is only one reason that you and I still have existence today and have not been killed by a natural phenomenon or anything else. It is the sheer pleasure and will of God. That is the only reason why we still exist. That is the only reason why we're here. It's because God's power is infinite to preserve. I love this quote. Man, despite his artistic pretensions, his sophistication, and his many accomplishments, still owes his existence to a six-inch layer of topsoil and the fact that it rains. That life on earth is an absolute miracle. That life is so frail, so fragile. The fact that we exist, the earth is tilted just the right way, that we would have seasons, and that we could raise food, and there's minerals in the ground, that we could eat plants that suck them up, and all of these things that sustain life. It just shouldn't be. When you look at the vastness of the universe and how big it is and how there is nothing that we know of out there but literally dirt. And yet we have life on this planet. And God is the one who made this and performs this and keeps this. This is a God that we should be able to trust with our lives and not have to be in control. God is in control of everything. We'll hit that one now. Verse 24. Scarcely are the nations planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth. When He blows on them, they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble. I'm just talking about the natural disasters that threaten us. The the reality is, is that nations rise and fall because of God's will and His power to execute His will perfectly. This absolutely pauses me in my tracks when I think about, I can't even get grass to grow in my front yard. But there is nothing that happens in any boardroom, in any Kremlin, in any White House, in any head of state, in any meeting, that God is not ultimately doing. Yet we think that we have control. We think that to bring peace to our lives and to our hearts, that we need to somehow exercise a level of control. Spurgeon said this, I believe that every particle of dust that dances in the sunbeam does not move an atom more or less than God wishes. That every particle of spray that dashes against the steamboat has its orbit as well as the sun in the heavens. The creeping of an aphid over a rosebud is as fixed as the march of any devastating pestilence. The fall of leaves from a poplar is as fully ordained as the tumbling of an avalanche. He that believes in a God must believe this truth. There is no standing point between this and absolute atheism. There is no halfway between a mighty God that works all things by the sovereign counsel of His will and no God at all. A God that cannot do as He pleases. A God whose will is frustrated is not a God and cannot be a God. I could not believe in such a God as that. I 
I don't know about you, but I'm feeling really, really small right now as I read this. Think about this for a moment. If there was one rogue particle in the entire universe, something that God did not control, God would stop being God at that point and we would have to find someone else to pray to. The sovereignty of God is not a doctrine to be debated. But for the worshiping child of God, it is an irresistible and unmovable shelter from a sinful heart in a world that has gone crazy. Think about this. Next one. God never gets tired. The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. Have you thought about why God designed us to sleep? Think about Think of all the things that we could get done if we did not have to sleep. We, and as long as our kids didn't have to sleep either, okay? We could have two jobs. We'd have three jobs. We could all, like, do... Imagine all the yard work we could get done. Imagine how beautiful our yards would be. Imagine all the things that we accomplish. Imagine the things that we could build and do. We could, we could all be in like full-time Christian ministry and do all of our jobs. We could do amazing things if God did not ordain us to sleep. He could have created us not needing to sleep. Do you, can you suspend your disbelief for a second that God could have created us as beings that did not need to sleep? But He did. I love sleep. I don't ever get enough sleep. Why did God ordain us to sleep? (laughs) Sleep is a daily reminder from God that we are not God. He who keeps Israel, says in Psalm 121, will never sleep or slumber, but Israel will. For we are not God. Once a day, God sends us to bed like patients with a sickness. The sickness is a chronic tendency to think that we are in control and that our work is indispensable. To cure us of this disease, God turns us into helpless sacks of dirt once a day. I'm reading from some that John Piper wrote called The Theology of Sleep. How humiliating to the self-made corporate executive that has to give up all control and because as limp as a suckling infant every single day. Sleep is a parable that God is God and we are mere men. God handles the world quite nicely while an entire hemisphere sleeps. Sleep is like a broken record that comes around with the same message every single day. Man is not sovereign. Man is not sovereign. You are not sovereign. Don't let this, don't let this lesson be lost on you. God wants to be trusted as the great worker who never tires and never sleeps. He is not nearly so impressed with our late nights and early mornings as He is with the peaceful trust that casts all anxieties upon Him and sleeps. Does that help you? We are not sovereign. 
God has ordained sleep simply to teach us that. Among other things, but that's certainly one great lesson from sleep. Now, I had in my notes this whole thing about how immense God is. I'm going to have to skip the whole thing. Just Can I, you just believe me for a second? Go, go ahead and go to the next one. He is immense. He's measured the waters and the hollows of His hand. He's marked off the heaven with a span. Lift up your eyes on high into the sky and see who created these stars. He who brings out their host by number, calling them by name, by the greatness of His might, and because He is strong in power, not one is missing. He's talking about looking up into the heavens at night and seeing the expanse of the heavens. Okay, real quick. Who here can tell me how fast light travels? What's that? Oh, you did in kilometers. That's even really smart. All right, well, for, for, for us who went to public school, okay, it's, it's 186,000 miles a second. All right? That's really fast. You know that's 372 times faster than you've ever traveled in a plane? Think about this. Light travels 186,000 miles a second. The stars that you see at night, they are so far away that the light that you see in your eyes tonight when you look up there left that star during the French Revolution. For those of you that know history, that's a long time ago. Space is huge. Universe is huge. All that nothingness simply to show us how God is big. And you know how He measures it? Not in light years, not in miles. The distance between His thumb and His pinky. God is very, very big. But what do we do? How do we react? How do we, how do we, how do we deal with this myth of control? God is unique. He knows everything. He powerfully and directs and controls everything. He's immense. He's great. But I will tell you right now, I don't believe it. I know it's true. But by the way that I live and the way that I worry and the way that I seek for control, I do not believe anything I just read. I'm growing in my understanding and I'm growing in my belief of it. But when I look at it, I am overwhelmed with my unbelief about who God is. We are the most unbelieving believers. Look at this. Look how Israel reacts as well. Go to the next one. In light of all that God has just shared about Himself and Isaiah has shared about Himself, this is how Israel reacts. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord and my right is disregarded by my God? That's exactly how we react. In light of all that I've just explained, we still believe that our way is hidden from God and what our right is is disregarded by my God. We do not believe in what God has declared about Himself, so we are afraid and we attempt to control our life. We can use manipulation. Afraid of certain outcomes, we lie to people about what's really happened. Through the desire to dominate others, we try to get our way 
through threatening people physically or verbally, through busyness. We worry about all of our clients and all of our accounts. And on the outside, it may look like you have a really good worth ethic and that you really are doing something to please, to rightfully please your boss and everyone around you. But yet on the inside, you are scared to death about losing the very existence and sustenance of your life. That's why you work so hard. I know because I do it and I did it. Have you thought for a moment recently how uncertain you are of the future? I know you couldn't verbalize it, but let me tell you what, if you're anything like me, you are scared to death of the uncertainty of the future. And it bothers you so much so that you're not even conscious of it. Why do you say, Israel, why do you say my, hidden is, my way is hidden from the Lord? I don't think that Isaiah captured a soundbite. It's not that he was saying, okay, well, Israel is verbally saying, my way is hidden from the Lord. My right is disregarded by my God. Film at 11. It, it, wasn't, it wasn't capturing sound bites. He was saying, this is what your life displays. The way that you live, the way that you worry, the way that you fight for control shows that you think that your way is hidden from God. If someone were to look in your heart and look at your life, what would they think God is like? Would they say that God is unique? Or would it be that He's just like everyone else's God? Would they say that God knows everything, that His knowledge is unsearchable? Or would they think that you actually think that you know more than He does? If they look at your life, would they think that God is powerful or that He's not because you still have to fend for yourself? Would you, they think that God never gets tired? Well, He must be tired because you are so busy God is immense? Or would they think that He might be just very, very small? What do our lives say? Do our lives say that God is in control of everything? Or are we exhausted, worn out, tired, frustrated, angry, and bitter because we still believe the fantasy that we're in control and we just can't seem to make things work out right? What do people think about God because of us? You know, one of the biggest things we can't control is our sin. Think about this for a moment. If we're honest, the sin of unbelief is everywhere in us. Our sin is pervasive. As Robert said last week, <laughs> I love this. This is the image that came to my head. It's like we don't just make isolated mistakes, kind of like potholes in an otherwise really good and smooth road. Our sin our unbelief is pervasive. It affects everything that we are, everything that we do. Now, I just took 45 minutes to explain who God is. Now, think about this. Have we done what is right in relationship to a God like that? Have we actually given Him the honor and the worship and the affection that is due to a God like we just learned about? we would have to be honest and say no. And the Bible agrees with us and it says that we have all fallen short of the glory of this God. For us, His creatures, for us to not one moment give Him obedience and worship due His name is a cosmic injustice without repair. 
in light of God, in light of this great and glorious God, not one ounce of disobedience, not one ounce of our affections being anywhere else is excusable. He is unique. And our worship and our obedience yet is so weak. And our belief is so weak. But how does God respond to us in this room that read about a God like this yet still look to control, to manipulate, to dominate others? This is how God responds to us. Verse 29. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. What does it mean to wait for the Lord like this? Here's the good news. Jesus displayed God perfectly. Now I just went through and said, what does your life display about God? What does your life explain about God? What does your life teach about God? Guess what? Jesus taught about God with his life. He displayed absolute trust in all that God is. His power, His fact that He does not change, the fact that He knows everything, the fact that He is unique. Jesus perfectly responded to God in every right and honorable and worshipful way. And God in His goodness and in His graciousness, we will look at in a couple weeks, chooses not to condemn us for our unbelief. But He instead instead of condemning us for falling short of His glory, He accepts Jesus' perfect life and death in our place. He accepts His perfect display of greatness as if we did the same thing. He maintains His justice against unbelievers like us and yet is still able to forgive us and to redeem us. The greatest thing that we could ever believe and understand and know about God is that He does not compromise His justice when He forgives us. And He is able to forgive us and still remain just. God does the impossible by sending Jesus to die for us on the cross. That is the greatest thing we can imagine.